640 Toronto presents Think Tank. The breaking stories you care about. Facts and opinions that get you through the day. Now, let's meet the guests. Let's do just that on a Wednesday morning. We say good morning to a noted broadcaster, Stephanie Smythe. It's great to have you on Think Tank this morning, Stephanie. Hey, morning. You sound fresher than I feel. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Mark Saunders. Uh, not for you, though. <laughs> oh, no, 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 not just. Uh, Mark Saunders is the uh, former chief of police for the city of Toronto, and he joins us as well. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Um, let's start with you, Mark. There's, uh, we're seeing um, your, um, well, he's not your immediate uh, follower in terms of uh, the chief role, but Myron Demke is out there and out there quite significantly in terms of advocating, almost marketing for the Toronto police budget to match the number that he's looking for. I would note uh, London's police gave, London's uh, city council gave police exactly what they asked for. And the police chief uh, there, who was under some scrutiny a couple of days ago, for his news conference scrutiny is part of the job um applauded it so we've got a scenario where there's a lot of debate about this i want to know where you view this in terms of a lens of a former police officer but also a resident of toronto where do you think this will go well listen the, the direct punch in the head to me that is glaring is the fact that they're saying it's taking 22 minutes to go to a priority one call full stop and when you look at the police services act and who runs the police services act which is the ontario civilian police commission one of the things that is a shall is you shall provide adequate and effective policing and if the chief does not feel that that is there there's an opportunity to go to that tribunal and i'm going to tell you 22 minutes to a priority one call in the biggest city in the country it's just not acceptable and it's not adequate and it is not effective policing. Is that I wondered about that number and I have heard people brought that up, Mark, that is that I don't know. It's obviously um, is it prudent to stick that number out there knowing you've got potential criminals listening going, thanks for telling us we have 22 minutes. Is there any argument to keeping that number under wraps? You keep it under wraps and something bad happens, then you wear it. The mm. bottom line is it's the Toronto Police Service Board that works with the chief to establish the budget. And out of that Toronto Police Service Board, three members belong to City Hall. And, and they listen to everything. And they had to figure out, is this the right number? They said it's the right number. So the most informed members of City Hall said that that was the right number. The others that are ill-informed seem to have taken over and made it a new story now. So at the end of the day, if the chief has to make sure that buyer beware, let the public know what is really going on, it is up to City Hall that makes the right numbers on where the money and allocation of funds go. And I'm telling you, it is something that is crucially important at the end of the day when it comes to public safety. Steph, there's something called um, uniform strength, and the Toronto Star actually has a great graph on it and how it's changed. But the simple terms of it is there was one cop for every 469 people in Toronto in 2009. It's now one for close to 600. That's 140 Torontonians without a police officer. I remember listening in the car, and you told a story over Christmas about your community group trying to stay in touch because – Cars were being broken into. Cars were stolen. Suspicious vehicles were driving past people's houses with kids uh, around walking on the sidewalk. That's no good. And the concept was even do we need do neighborhoods even need to hire our own private security just to watch our houses? Now, we didn't think we'd be here five, six years ago, but here we are. Are you kidding me? Exactly. And and in fact, our community did hire private security. And I know it's a controversial topic. And aren't we lucky we can mm-hmm. uh, do that? But it's strength in numbers. And it's not just the vehicles being stolen. We have 
and which is bad enough, but it is the uh, threat to safety and security now because of the home invasions that go with it. The thieves are more and more desperate to get the vehicles, so it's not just stealing them out of your driveway, it's breaking into your home while you're sleeping, while you're there with your kids to get the keys to get those cars. So that is what, and then the carjackings that we're seeing around the city as well. So, you know, this is one of those circumstances where Mark can speak to this too as well. It's, circum- it's areas that are feeling it. It's certain uh, potential, potential crimes or specific crimes that are happening now um, that are creating this fear. And I have to commend the Toronto Police Association for coming up with that 22-minute ad because, boy, has that been effective. And it might be fear-mongering, but it's also very true. We called for service here. I told this story as well. Um, it took 34 minutes in a potential home invasion to uh, get a, a, a car here on our back just a few months ago and mark these videos i see a new one it feels like every two days uh, from a, a door cam but it, it, we all have far more security and surveillance um than we had Doesn't 15 <laughs> yes yeah, no 15 20 years ago and you're right but that's that's my point is mark we're seeing like disturbing people trying to kick doors down with guns there's four or five kids there's a getaway car waiting and there's there's a knowledge that like steph just said these guys know they've got the time. They know they've got a window of time to get this done and take off with your vehicle or even worse. No, absolutely. And, and it, it does identify that there is a glaring problem right now when it comes to City Hall and the decisions that they're making and what they're prioritizing. And if people do not feel safe, it is not good for our city. It's not good for tourism. It's not good for a whole host of things. And between that and the disorder, you know, we're in a situation right now where I, I hope City Hall does the right thing and, and actually figures out how to get this right. Steph, so much of it is as well. Uh, we're seeing pressure put on the federal government when it comes to stiffer sentences. We saw that story. I don't think I've talked to you about this, but that story last week, I thought with the five-year-old and the four-month-old in the back of a car, mom's getting groceries. We've all been there where you got your hands full. You're trying to get your kids in the car and do your shopping. And a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old shove her out of the way, steal her car with her kids in it. And we can say, okay, there was a happy ending. The guys got arrested. Well, two things for that. One, that five-year-old may never, ever, ever forget the feeling of that, watching your mom get shoved to the sidewalk and watching two teenagers steal the car with you and your little, little baby brother or sister in it. And the second thing is those guys, 16 and 13, they aren't going to do any jail time because 18 and under, there's this wall of protection It's uh, with our legislation right now. Yeah. So where's the deterrent, right? Where right. is the deterrent and where's the fear? It, the, the fact is people just believe that they can get away with anything these days. And we're just seeing it. And, and it, it, whether it's the, under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, if that's what it's still called, I believe. But, yep. you know, it, it is just... To me, it's appalling, and I think that there's got to be – it's just got to be zero tolerance for these kinds of things. It just continues. If, if, if there's no sense of, of any kind of um, uh, repercussion or, or punishment. Mark, you talked about this uh, in the summer um, and when you were running for mayor, and I wanted to bring this up again because when it comes to a four pillars drug strategy, um, the four pillars are harm reduction, prevention, treatment, enforcement. And too often, and I've said this, I'm worried we're only doing harm reduction and we aren't doing the other three. So I sent you a release from the Belleville Police Service last night uh, where they were telling people avoid unnecessary travel to the downtown. And I'm like, I've been to Belleville. The whole thing is the downtown. There's 50,000 people that live there, but they were responding to 13 overdose incidents in a one hour frame in broad daylight in early February. 
I read that a few different times and it was just harrowing to think again, is this, this was a, is this where we're at moment? And if it's happening in Belleville, you can bet it's happening in a lot more smaller towns across the province. You bet. And, and when, when the capacities aren't there to deal with that, um, it magnifies tremendously. And, and you know, it, it's, it's again, a case it, it's happened once or twice in Toronto where the drug dealer comes in and, and fentanyl wasn't mixed properly. The, these drugs again are so potent they're, they're measured by granularity so if you have two or three more grains of fentanyl or carfentanil it, it's going to be fatal if you don't have that medical assistance and so when you have that and it's dealt out all at once everyone gets hit with it right away and you have this wave of people that are collapsing and, and in their fatal state so they're asking people to stay clear so they have the opportunity of that medical first aid component to it but here's the thing Again, when your your strongest pillar when it comes to uh, substance use is a consumption piece, then people are going to consume. And so without having the treatment and, and, and all of those other factors in, this is what's going to happen. When you look at in BC right now, where they decriminalized last year alone, the numbers were incredibly high. They had 2,500 deaths, toxic related deaths in last year. And here we have the city of Toronto that's put the letter in to ask for decriminalizing these drugs here in Toronto as well, too. So I'm not sure what the roadmap is and what the final uh, conclusion is to this, but I don't think it's looking great. Steph, I think we're going to look at this maybe like I was going to say 20 years, but maybe in five. And we're going to be like, was this really like some kind of ideological issue? Was this really about left, right, middle? The concept should be we need a range of interventions and support programs to help people make better decisions about their life. I've heard this. Oh, we can't be stigmatizing these people. We also can't let them die on the streets either. And there's a balancing act here. What's it going to take? Yeah, I mean, if, if the public doesn't have the fear about it, the people consuming the drugs, is it really that they're not aware and they haven't heard about what's going on at West? Is that possible, but they're just willing to take the chance? I mean, I think, you know, when you look at addiction and drugs and even alcohol, you know, we all are learning more and more about uh, the mm. dangers of alcohol and we, and we take the chance, right? And is there just, you know, what kind of education pieces there out there or hasn't there been with about this kind of these kinds of deaths it's literally frightening people away from taking the chance it isn't oh maybe you know okay you're going to get lucky you're not going to die this time or you know or you're going to just have a great high to me it's just mind-boggling the whole thing yeah and mark what is it what what happens when take us inside the the belleville police department that's again like there's some there's a lot of thought sober thought that goes into sending a release like that out. They know that people are going to be, there's all of a sudden this negative spotlight on the town. The mayor might be like, what are you doing? But like eventually enough becomes enough and you have to put the public and their safety first and say, we don't want you downtown right now because it's not safe. Like this could do some long-term damage. Yeah, you know, as first responders, and God bless them all, their hearts are always in the right place. And they want to do anything they can to reduce a fatal outcome. And so whatever it takes in those moments, they will do. And, and you know, I, I also want to say something, mm-hmm. right? This this becomes such a political, polarized discussion. Because in no way, shape, or form am I trying to demonize a user. I understand the addiction things. I've had family members and friends that have had these issues. But I will say this. In each and every case that I've known or been involved in, no one has ever said that the solution is to decriminalize these drugs. And no one has ever said that safe consumption was the first and foremost thing. It is always that treatment and therapy. I understand it, but funds have to be put into all of those pillars or else we are not going to have successful outcomes. 
I want to sw- uh, move it to bus routes, and Mark, I'll, I'll come to you uh, um, last on this one. Uh, I know we talked about bike lanes a fair bit. I want to know if there's a, a bit of a different perspective on bus routes. But, Steph, um, there there could be, obviously, uh, we see some bus lanes. There's one on the DVP that's significant, but it only lasts so long, and then all of a sudden that bus can pass you, but then all of a sudden it's going to be stuck in a lot of congestion uh, based on the DVP going from north, um, basically from the 404 into the city. Um, when, when I lay that out and say, that's probably an affordable way for people to get from point A to B. It may be um, an, an environmentally friendly way to get from point A to B. But it also there are some city councilors worried it's just going to clog up roads even more than they already are. How do you view this yeah. one? <laughs> I saw Stephen Holiday saying, you know, well, the war on the car continues in Toronto. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I am so uh, frustrated by this whole conversation. You know, you see, I get that you do these dedicated bus lanes, which are not, you know, fully on board yet, but there have been some that have, you know, been underway. Um, they're looking at the you know, different bus route, right? Um, mm. And they're the red lanes where the buses just get, you know, straight, keep going, you know, and don't get stopped, uh, caught up in the traffic. On the one hand, it looks like a fantastic solution to keep people in transit moving. I'm thinking, why can't we just build more subways? Keep building, you know, get transit better before you continue to block the surface routes more and more, right? So to me, it is such a, it's such a hot potato. I don't know what the solution is. Looking at bus rates, bus lanes, bike lanes, congestion, which is just epic now. It sure it can be great for the commuter, but for the people who are still in vehicles, because our transit system is not sufficient enough, it is not effective enough, it is not efficient enough. You know, it, it's mm. just going to create more chaos in my mind. Mark, it, it didn't come up much during the uh, election campaign. Bike lanes were, like I said, a more prominent issue, but uh, there's pros and cons with every p- potential transit proposal. How do you see this one? Well, you know, optically, it looks like we're racing for first to be the worst when it comes to traffic congestion in the world. Um, you know, our, our infrastructure when it comes to transit is, is horrible. And, and this is something that has been left and neglected for decades. And, and there lies the problem. We're looking for leadership that's going to be brave enough to make the right decisions and act on it aggressively right now. And, and, and so the moment we sit on it, the moment we do these quasi things without a bigger picture as to what are we actually going to do, we're going to be stuck like this for a long, long time. So we're going to have to see what this plan looks like. As far as I'm concerned, anytime you turn a two-lane highway into a one-lane highway, it is catastrophic. Yeah. So what the times and hours are, what the actual streets are going to be and how they're going to execute it and how they're going to look at it and review it to see if it works or not. And being honest with the citizens, if it's not working to stop it. Yeah, Mark, I've had a lot. I've had a few counselors um, say, well, we need, you know, high occupancy vehicle lanes may make more sense. And just for peak hours, we've got them all over. If people are driving out to to Burlington or Hamilton area on the QEW going that way to the 403, there's a ton of high occupancy vehicle lanes and and they seem to have some sense of efficiency to it. But again, then you're you're sort of, as you said, going from three lanes to two or two to one on some of our roads. Yeah, and again, it's a sum of all parts equals a whole. When we deal with the city as a whole, when we've got the bike lanes in places where they shouldn't be, and now we've got this coming up, and mm. are they modifying the traffic lights to be in sync with all these things? The plan has to be more robust, and it should be temporary, and they should be aggressively figuring out other things to make a formal and dedicated commitment to enhancing the subway systems and those other things that we need. This one's a really rough story, but it sets a legal precedent. It happened in Michigan yesterday. Um, there was a 
school shooting at Oxford High School in Oxford, Michigan, November 2021. And yesterday, it's the first time it's happened in uh, in U.S. court history. But the mother of a school shooter was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. I want to play a clip from Chris Cuomo's News Nation show last night. He's talking to the father of one of the victims, Tate Meyer. Do you believe that this goes down as a fix or do you con- are you concerned that this is just part of what justice should be? For instance, the school knew a lot of the same things that the parents did, right? No, this isn't the fix. And this is this is what we, this is part of the problem. This is a whole systemic problem. Um, and for us to want to just point the finger at the gun is not the solution. And that's what that's what our that's what our system does. They want to they want to get everybody fighting about these crazy wedge issues and guns are one of them. Right. And then they don't want us to focus and they don't want to focus on the whole systemic issue. And, you know, if the more digging that you do on this, Chris, you're going to see that there was a huge systemic failure here and the gun is just part of it. So she's um, she's convicted of manslaughter, Steph. And again, every mother's worst nightmare. That said, school officials told the parents, you got to take your kid home. Um, w- w- he needs mental health counseling. He's searching for uh, online for bullets at school. He's drawing, drawing violent images. The parents say we can't take him. We both have to go back to work. So he's going back to school. We always say sometimes we need to hold parents accountable for kids and their actions sometimes. And then what it happens, like I was just raw and I just got I got the shakes looking at this this mother thinking no matter what she did, she's going to jail for manslaughter now? Well, look, I, I'm all for this holistic approach when it comes to solving these kinds of crimes. And if it has something to do that is born out of the home uh, and, and it is, you know, in court, okay, it yeah. is tried in court, to be fair, right, to ensure, it's not to say let's point blame at parents all the time, but if there is something that went on in that home that is partially, at least partially culpable for what happened with that person to get either get a hold of the gun or mentally be, I'm, I'm thinking like if you live in a home where you're going to be uh, filling your child's minds with conspiracy theories, et cetera, and then it leads to these kinds of things, why not put a microscope on it? Take a look at it. What is going on in that situation? I'm not saying point mm-hmm. finger blame automatically at the parents for the rearing, but what is going on in that home that might have contributed and how can people be held accountable as well beyond what that that gentleman was saying about the gun. But this the whole approach to take a look at the environment that person, that child was in and what, if anything, could be held accountable if anyone, for what happened and in what way. I like the I don't po- have a problem with it. I like the point Steph makes on on this, Mark, but it is, it, like, again, it opens a can of worms. What was going on in the home? What did parents know? And and by the way, the uh, the father of this boy, who is going to, to court for four counts of first-degree murder, but the father has his own manslaughter trial beginning in March. I'm like, good luck, because your wife was just convicted of it. I don't know what kind of defense he can put up that says she knew things that I didn't. Uh, it's got a lot of complexities to it. And it's again, it's precedent setting for a reason. Yeah. And this is where Canada really is distinct from the U.S. and that Second Amendment. And, and it, there's a mindset to it as well. But, you know, when you buy a firearm, there are huge responsibilities for it. And it seems a little more, a little more lax in the United States. But when you buy your kid a gun, as the parent, there are certain responsibilities of, of storing and making sure that the access is not easy and obtainable, especially when, when that person is suffering with mental health. Uh, so even mm. Canada, when we talk about it, just, I think I read it just a day or two ago in Manitoba, where parents are charged with manslaughter because the infant died from fentanyl yes. overdose. So, 
So there, there is responsibility and, and, and ownership on you as a parent when it comes to the well-being of your children, and, and you're going to be held accountable for those things. So I, I'm, I'm for the charge being laid in this case because of the fact that they did not take the responsibility of those firearms, and I hope it sets a precedent for other parents. Last story is kind of cool one. Uh, a woman's forgotten wallet uh, was found at uh, the Eaton Center 40 years later. It looked a little bit different, but a guy in Michigan found a wallet that a young child lost. The funny part is um, there were Canada's Wonderland passport coupons in there, Steph. Valid until <laughs> June 16, 1984. And um, Canada's Wonderland, like a lot of things, a lot less expensive then, a ton more fun. You could go for the day, see a concert, ride the, ride the wildebeest, which is still in existence. Have you ever lost your wallet and did it turn into or person did it turn into a bit of a to-do well you know what i can't remember that i have but all the whole you know takeaway from this is never give up on the lost and found (laughs) (laughs) right i think it's amazing to see this i wish it happened more often but yeah thankfully i haven't uh, lost my wallet yet or lately anyway that i can remember it because god knows i don't want to go through like changing every every bit of id and credit card but you know the, the lost and found alive and well hilarious I can't. It's hard to believe a person's organized as Mark Saunders could misplace his wallet and, and a <laughs> member of the public finds it. But has that ever happened? Greg, first off at home, I lose my wallet and my <laughs> keys every day. Full disclosure. <laughs> and you know, I, I lost my police badge many years ago on the subway system when I was chasing someone. And two days later, someone actually turned it into the police station. I was actually shocked at that. So, yay, Canada. We have good yay. people. He may have he may have arrested a couple of his friends uh, after finding it for. <laughs> I love that visual of Mark running to the subway and losing his badge. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, you know there was a day when I actually was on the ground doing police work. Go figure that, eh? Oh yep. my goodness! Our yeah. Hero. I, I lost I lost mine as a Western student. I don't remember where it fell out. And I'm telling you, this nice old lady called me. She looked me up in the phone book. Kids, we used to have those back then. And she found my landline, Steph and Mark, and called me. And I've never been so happy. I tried to give her money from the wallet. It was returned intact. So there's always good, you know, good people out people, there more than bad. Yeah. And people talk about random acts of kindness, right? And how do you do it? That, to me, would be one of the one of the best ever if somebody found your wallet and called you right i think that's just so amazing yeah that's bad you you know a lesson to everybody to find something to help help people out yeah the good old days Uh, maybe they'll return someday loved having you both on this morning 